chapter 16, Acts chapter 16. We're going to cover verses 1 through 11 this morning, and 1 through 11 cover Paul's second missionary journey. Paul's second missionary journey. Back in chapter 15, 41, we left off where the passage told us about the beginning of the journey. So where we left off in chapter 15, verse 41, it begins to tell us it's the beginning of of the journey. Paul and Silas, it says, went through Syria, Cilicia, strengthening the churches. And then from there, they're going to go up into the area of Galatia. Now, Paul will visit the Galatian churches that were there because that's where the problem started with the Judaizers who wanted to mix law and grace. The letter to the Galatians is Paul's letter to them, strongly warning them about being led astray by those who are trying to put them under the law of Moses. It's his strongest words and defense of the doctrine of salvation by faith. Not only is a sinner saved by grace through faith, but the saved sinner lives by grace. Grace is the way to life. Grace is the way to eternal life. And grace is the way of life, of living the life of salvation. So let's begin now with chapter 16, verses 1 and 2. It says, Then he, that is Paul, then he came to Derbe and Lystra. And behold, a certain disciple was there named Timothy the son of a certain Jewish woman who believed, but his father was great. He was well spoken of by the brethren who were at Lystra and Iconium. So after Paul and Barnabas went their separate ways, you know, after their split up over the disagreement between John Mark, you know, Paul wanted to take, Paul didn't want to take John Mark and Barnabas wanted to take John Mark, but the, the, the dispute got so intense that they just said, no, they just split up and they went their separate ways. So Paul and Barnabas, after splitting up, Paul now joined up with Silas, and they've come back to Derby and Lystra, and they went back to check on the churches that Paul established there earlier. And when they got there, they found that the church was doing well. And then they met a young man in the fellowship named Timothy. Now this young man, he was about 18 years old. And he must have been an exemplary young man, an extraordinary young man, because it says here, notice, he was well spoken of by the brethren. So Timothy was already known for his gifts and his graces for the ministry. And even though this young man was, like I said, he was 18 years old, he was recognized as a person with a true commitment to the Lord. And Timothy's father was a Greek. His mother Eunice was a Jewish believer in Christ. And his mother Lois was a believer too. Both of them passed on to Timothy their great trust in God. Look at verse 3. Paul wanted to have him, that is Timothy, go on with him. And he took him and he circumcised him because of the Jews who were in, the reg- who were in that region. For they all knew that his father was Greek. Even though Timmy, Timothy was was well spoken of by the brethren as it says here and he had a true commitment to the Lord there was just one thing that might be a stumbling block with Timothy as far as Paul could see but that could be easily fixed if Timothy was willing to go along with the painful procedure of circumcision it would be a good test of young Timothy's courage and commitment 
Timothy wasn't Jew nor Gentile, but he was more Jew than Gentile. And because of the Jews' prejudice, and because Paul's first contact uh, in a city was with Jews, Paul thought it would be best if Timothy became a Jew totally and was circumcised. Paul's Paul's circumcision of Timothy was an extraordinary step because it showed in Paul's mind there was no partiality. Paul was willing to die for the principle that circumcision had nothing to do with salvation and for the truth that Gentiles must not be forced to accept circumcision as a requirement and rule of faith. And Paul would fight to his death for the Gentiles to be free from doing anything that would put them under the yoke of bondage to the Mosaic law. But Paul was also very free from that kind of bondage. Remember, Paul said that, you know, he, he'd go through uh, nearly anything that he had to in order to save men. And so, now in this case, it was, it was Timothy that uh, Paul was hoping he was willing to go through the circumcision again to, again, not be a stumbling block to ministering to the Jews. Paul could see that Timothy was an exceptional case at 18 years old. He was a man of God. And being neither Jew nor Gentile would be a disadvantage to him in the kind of work that Paul was involved in. But the Jews would look at Timothy as a Gentile because he was uncircumcised, the uncircumcised son of a Greek father. And Gentiles would see him as a Jew because he was practically raised as a Jew by his mother. So Paul decided that in Timothy's case, because most of his work would be with the unsaved Jews, it would be best for Timothy only uh, uh, Timothy to make it official by becoming a Jew officially or totally. The Gentiles would accept a missionary who, wasn't, who was totally Jewish. He would, a lot more willingly than the Jews would accept a missionary who was, uh, who was half Gentile. Paul left that decision up to Timothy who showed his heart for God by agreeing to the not-so-pleasant procedure. If Timothy had been totally Gentile like Titus was, Paul surely wouldn't have taken this step. But Paul was a peacemaker, more than most men, always willing to make allowances as long as it didn't violate or compromise some important vital truth, some doctrinal truth. Look at verse 4. And as they went through the cities, they delivered to them the decrees to keep, which were determined by the apostles and elders at Jerusalem. Remember, at the Jerusalem council. So as Paul and Silas moved from Lystra and Derbe, Timothy went with them. They went from church to church, showing them the official letter from the church in Jerusalem that stated the parts of the law they agreed the Gentile believers should abide by. And back in chapter 15, 28, and 29, <clears throat> those laws were this, that you abstain from things offered to idols, from blood, from things strangled, and from sexual immorality. And if you keep yourselves from these, you will do well. Verse 5. So the churches were strengthened in the faith and increased in number daily. Let me read that again. So the churches were strengthened in the faith and increased in number daily. We see the church was growing. The Lord wants to bless His church still. He wants to add to His church daily still. He wants the church to grow. But that's the Lord's doing. 
Paul said in 1 Corinthians 3, 6 through 7, he said, I planted, Paul, Paul said, I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the increase. Paul had his part, Apollos had his part, but God brought the increase. He said, so then neither he who plants is anything nor he who waters, but God who gives the increase. Now, that being said, that, that Paul says, you know, the one who waters isn't anything, the one who plants isn't anything, it's God. He gives the increase. Now, does that mean now that we don't have to do anything? Does that mean that we sit and do nothing? You know, if the one who waters isn't anything, or the one who plants isn't anything, it's God who brings the increase, then why should I do anything? Are there things that we can do to help the church grow? Yes, there is. Acts 2.42 is, you could call it the formula for church growth. It says in verse, uh, chapter 2.42 of Acts, and they, that is the church, the believers, and they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine, which is the word of God, and fellowship in the breaking of bread and in prayers. So they, went, they, they were in the word of God, they had the fellowship, they broke bread together, and they prayed together. That's the formula for church growth. And when the people did these things that they were supposed to do, then God took care of the church growth. So that being the case, we have to ask ourselves, are we doing the things that we're supposed to do? We have to honestly ask ourselves that. And if we don't see our church growing, are we doing the things that we are supposed to be doing and then in acts 2 46 and 47 we read so continually don't it, continuing daily daily with one accord they were united so daily it says so continuing daily with one accord they were in the temple breaking bread from house to house they ate their food with gladness and simplicity of heart praising god and having favor with all people and the Lord added to the church daily those who are being saved. So here you have the people's part, and we see God's part. The people went to, went to church daily. They broke bread together. They ate their food with gladness, simplicity of heart. They praised God, praised God had favor with all the people. And, it's, and the Lord added to the church daily. The problem is that when we try to do God's business for him, we neglect our own. See, God does what he does. We need to do what we need to do. Our business is to feed and to watch and to care for the sheep. Now, just as there are things that we can do to help the church grow, there are also things that we can do to hinder the church's growth, to keep it from growing, like quenching the Spirit, grieving the Holy Spirit, which hinders growth. Now, what are these things that quench and grieve the Spirit? Paul listed some of them in Ephesians 4, 30-32. Paul said this, And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. He said, let all bitterness, now he's beginning to list those things that will grieve the Holy Spirit, quench the Holy Spirit, and keep the church from growing. He said, let all bitterness, wrath, Anger, clamor, and evil speaking be put away from you with all malice and be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, even as God in Christ forgave you. 
So at the beginning of the list is the word bitterness. Bitterness is a slow-burning resentment. It's a lingering, grudge-filled attitude. It's the spirit of irritability that keeps a person always bitter, making him sour and unforgiving. It's not a very nice description of, of, a, of a Christian. Wrath. The next, the next word. Wrath has to do with wild rage. Wild rage. The passion of the moment. Then anger. Anger is more of an inner smoldering, a restrained and deep feeling. Clamor. Clamor is yelling. It's yelling harsh words from strife showing that you've lost control. And one of the fruit of the Spirit is self-control. Galatians 5.22. And then evil speaking. Evil speaking is where we get blasphemy. Evil speaking is the continuing slander of someone that comes from a, uh, someone that, that comes from a bitter heart. And then Paul adds malice. Malice is the general word for evil that's the root of all sins. And he says all of these things have to be put off. Paul told the Colossians in Colossians 3.8, put off all these things, anger, wrath, malice, blasphemy, filthy language out of your mouth. Now these specific sins involve conflict between two people. That is between the believer and unbeliever. It's even worse when it's between believer and believer. But these are the sins that break fellowship and destroy relationship. It destroys the effectiveness and the witness of the church. It weakens the church. It spoils its testimony in front of the whole world. Maybe that's why the churches aren't growing. We're not an effective witness, maybe. Maybe we're not sharing the word. We're not witnessing the word. Maybe we are, but we have these sins that keep the church from going, that grieve the Holy Spirit. Maybe there's a bunch of angry people, evil speaking people, people with filthy language, malice. And so the people say, well, they're, they're talking Jesus, but they're not living Jesus. Why would I want to go to their church? These are the sins that break the fellowship in the church, and then it ruins the testimony in front of the whole world. And if we allow all of these things to go on in the church, these things will, give, these things will grieve and quench the Holy Spirit, and they will stop the flow of God's blessings in the church. And in place of those sins, we are to be, notice Paul said we are to be kind, hearted, or kind to one another. We're to be tender-hearted. We're to be forgiving of one another, even as God and Christ forgive you. Paul said tender-hearted. This is the idea of being compassionate, and it reflects a feeling deep down inside the heart of our emotions. Tender-hearted, it's, a, it's, it's an emotional thing. It's, a, it's a, like a gnawing at you. It's, it eats away at you. It's, it's this emotional pain due to compassion for someone's need. It's something that we, we want to help somebody. It's, it's a, it gnaws away. It, it wants to, we want to help somebody that's in need. Forgiving one another. That's so basic when it comes to showing Christ-like character. 
that you don't really have to say much about it. It's something you do. And if we keep ourselves in the love of God and we're filled with and led by the Holy Spirit, letting that love flow out onto one another, we will find God's Spirit flowing through our church. God works in an environment, in an atmosphere of love. Verse 6. Now, when they had gone through Phrygia and the region of Galatia, they were forbidden by the Holy Spirit to preach the word in Asia. This is really neat here. It's neat to see how God guided these early missionaries. It mostly involves stopping their movement. The Holy Spirit put up a roadblock when they tried to take a road that wasn't the right one for them. When they wanted to go toward Asia... The Holy Spirit said no. He he stopped them there. When they tried to go toward Bithynia, He stopped them again. Now years later in Paul's life, he would do some of his greatest work in those areas where the Holy Spirit was saying no for now. Right now the Holy Spirit said not yet, Paul. And so he closed the door on them. Because it seems like it wasn't the right time for them to try to to reach these areas that Satan had uh, attacked and made impassable. So Apollos had to go there first to lay the groundwork. Paul and Barnabas were needed more urgently somewhere else, as we'll see in a minute. And they needed more training before taking on this huge responsibility. So, listen... Whenever you're in doubt about what to do, about which way to go, just stop. Stop and submit your decision. Give it totally to the Holy Spirit and ask Him to close every door that isn't the right one. Tell Him, Spirit, I give you complete leadership and authority to block every road and to stop every step that's not of God. And Lord, speak to me. Speak to me wherever I turn to the left or the right. You tell me which way I'm supposed to go. Deuteronomy 5.32, it says, Therefore, you shall be careful to do as the Lord your God has commanded you. You shall not turn aside to the right hand or to the left. Unless he tells you to turn then you keep going forward. You keep doing what God has called you to do until you are absolutely sure He's told you to do something. And and just be careful to obey even His his slightest nudging or warning. Then, after you've prayed and there are no obvious obstacles, you go on, you move forward with a confident heart. Verse 7. After they had come to Mysia, they tried to go into Bithynia, but the Spirit did not permit them. You know, it's, 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 it seems odd that it's a strange thing for the Lord to do. You know, they're going to Bithynia. They're going to do the Lord's work. They want to see people saved. They want to start churches. They want to do all the things that, that you think, you know, takes place in ministry. But the Lord shut the door on them. By his own spirit. The Holy Spirit shut that door. And there are times when the Holy Spirit requires, you know, you know we think we're, we're, we're to always be busy. We're always to be doing some action, some activity. 
But is it what God wants us to do? A.W. Tozer said that we would be surprised, we'd be shocked at what God thinks of some of the things that we do. Some of the activities that we're involved in. Because it's not what God wants us to do. But we ha- we're busy about something. And so, again, there are times when the Holy Spirit doesn't require us to be active, but also requires us to sit still, to do nothing. And we need to ask the Lord to teach us to see another door even when I'm sitting still. And, and ask the Lord, help me, Lord. Help me, Lord, to, that a person may, you know, sometimes be called to serve by doing nothing, but, but staying still or by waiting and not moving. Help me to learn that. That I can serve the Lord just as well, not doing anything, as well as, as moving, being active. Because whatever God wants me to do is the best thing to do. I may not see it that way, but if God says no, then that's the best thing for me. It's the best, best place for me. We read in, in, in Exodus 14, 13, stand still and see the salvation of the Lord, God told Moses. In 46, Psalm 46, 10, the psalmist was told, be still and know that I am God. And then Ruth was told in, in Ruth 3.18, until you know how the matter will turn. He says, sit still until the matter, you know how the matter will turn out. Stand still, be still, sit still. You know, and, and go over to Exodus 14.13 and, and make a little note to lead you to Psalm 46.10 and then from 46.10 to Ruth 3.18 so you can have a reference to all three of those uh, uh, scriptures. Stand still, be still, and sit still to be a reminder to you that whenever you feel nervous, whenever you feel fidgety, whenever you're wanting to interfere with, what God's, with God's plan for your life, remember these three admonitions. They're all saying, don't move. Stand still, be still, sit there. They're all telling you, don't move. And then when you hear that still, small voice, that says, don't move. I won't complain that sometimes the Holy Spirit doesn't allow me to go somewhere or He doesn't allow me to do anything at the moment. Now, how many, how many times do we, when God tells us don't move or don't go or you're, you're just at a standstill and God closes a door on you, how many times do you do, how do we act to that, react to it? How do you react to those unexpected things when, when they come up in your life, when God slams the door closed on you and you can't move? We usually blame Satan. <laughs> oh, Satan's attacked me. He's, you know, he's closed the door to ministry for me. Yeah, I, I can't serve because of this and that. We, we give Satan way too much attention and credit. Instead of thinking of Satan, we have, God, what are you doing? What are you wanting to show me? What do you want to teach me? We get all upset because we think Satan's the one who's closed the door rather than thinking, hey, it might be the Lord keeping me from some harmful problem. He might be keeping me from getting hurt in something. 
Let the Holy Spirit have total authority in your life to direct your steps as well as your stops. Verse 8. So passing by Mysia, they came to Troas. So Paul, Silas, and Timothy, they are still walking across Mysia. They're not stopping anywhere. They're not stopping to do any ministry. They're still moving. They're still walking, they're moving on this, 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 this weird kind of a, this weird kind of, I don't know what to do state. Walking and I, I don't know what I'm to do. I'm in this limbo state. I'm not sure of what's going on. And, and Paul and Silas and Timothy, they were all ready for a lot of ministry. They probably thought, no, man, you know, we're going to go there and, and there's going to be huge crowds. There's going to be great crusades. There's got to be a lot of people getting saved. There's going to be signs and wonders. God's going to do all kinds of miracles. As, and they, as well, they expected attacks from the enemy and persecution. They expected to be arrested, imprisonment, even to die. But that's, they were going there and they were all ready for it. They expected to see a lot of new char- uh, churches started. But what happens? Nothing. Nothing. Do you think Paul was disappointed? I'll bet he was. You know, he just wandered around aimlessly from place to place. You know, he's just going. He just keeps on moving until God shows him where to go. They expected almost anything to happen but not this we never expect the uncertainty in life though we're warned about it all the time this constant marching along the highways by Paul, Timothy and Silas they're marching for hundreds of miles on the highways they're getting nowhere they're not serving in any way usual there's nothing to show for it except Paul saying to every suggestion probably brought up by Silas and Timothy hey we're not going to do anything he was saying no to every temptation to stop and do something I'm sure you know you can see maybe Silas and Timothy are just Paul, you know, why don't we, you know, until we know what, what we're to do, let's, let's stop here and let's, let's witness to these people. Let's, let's do something here. Let's go here. Paul said, no. He's saying no. God hasn't spoken to us on what to do and where to go. And Paul, I'm sure, was troubled by all of this. You know, he, he probably got weird looks from Silas and Timothy. Silas and Timothy walking by the side and saying, man, what's up with Paul? Why aren't we doing something? Paul himself probably had doubts. We have a great picture of this this obedience to the movement of God in Exodus 40, verses 34 through 37. It says, Then the cloud covered the tabernacle of meeting, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. And Moses was not able to enter the tabernacle of meeting because the cloud rested above it. And the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Now here's here's what it says. Whenever the cloud was taken up from above the tabernacle, the children of Israel would go onward in all of their journeys. 
But if the cloud was not taken up, taken up, then they did not journey till the day that it was taken up. The people of God, the children of Israel, did not move until that cloud lifted up off of the tabernacle and began to move. That, that cloud represented God, the movement of God. And when God went, moved, they followed. Even if that cloud didn't move for two days, they would wait. If it didn't move for a month, they would wait. If it didn't move for a year, and it most likely did sometimes, stay there for it. They stayed put. They didn't move without God. Then Moses in Exodus 33, 15 said, show me, your, uh, show me now your way, Lord. If your presence does not go with us, do not bring us up from here. And look at Moses said, you know what, God? If you're not going with us, we're not going. We're not moving. How many times do we move without God? How many times do we go here without God or do this without God? We haven't asked him. He's not with us in it. And then we wonder why it all falls apart. Why am I all messed up? Well, was God with you in this? Did he give you the okay to go here? Did he give you the okay to do this and to do that? You know, we could probably think about Paul and all of this and, and, and during this time of his delay and his uncertainty in Troas. And people could ask him, hey, Paul, where are you going? He would probably would have said, you know what? I have no idea. I don't know. And, and, and people would probably say something like, Paul, come on now. You, the, the great apostle Paul, you don't know where you're, where you're going next. You don't know what you're going to do next. Come on, you've you, you got to know what God's will is for your life. We don't know what God's will is for our life. We don't know what God has determined for us. And then people would have sat down with Paul for a nice long lecture on how he determined the will of God in his life. Paul does not know the will of God. Why? Because the Holy Spirit of God is leading him. Paul is simply waiting for the hand of God to point, go there. And it's going to take a mighty movement of God to get Paul out of Asia and to get him over into Europe. So that's why Paul is staying put here in Troas. The others were probably thinking, Paul, come on, let's, 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 let's do something. They're probably thinking, Paul's, man, Paul, any moment now, Paul's going to start evangelizing. But he didn't. He stayed put. He didn't do anything. He stood still. Why? He needed to hear a direct word now from the Holy Spirit. He waited. That's the hard part. That's the hard, one of the hardest parts about seeking God. It's waiting to hear from Him. Paul could afford to wait. We can't, you can't afford not to wait. Because like I said a minute ago, if you go before God... You run ahead of God, you're going to run into some problems. The Holy Spirit, in spite of everything that was going on, was still the Lord of the harvest. Paul was just a worker. Paul wanted to be busy. Paul was willing to get busy. Paul was willing to go to work. He was, he was chomping at the bit, but he was duty-bound. 
Paul, like a good soldier and like every good soldier, has to wait for the orders. And if you've been in the military, you know you, you need to get orders. And you can get in just as much trouble for not, for, 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 for not waiting for orders as well as going before you get the orders. If you don't obey orders, you're getting in trouble. If you don't wait for the orders, you're going to get in trouble. And the Bible compares the Christian to a good soldier. A good soldier. Be a good soldier, we're exhorted. And so Paul, like a good soldier, he's waiting to receive his orders. Verse 9. And a vision appeared to Paul in the night. And a man of Macedonia stood and pleaded with him saying, Come over to Macedonia and help us. Macedonia was across the Aegean Sea. It was on the, on the mainland of Greece. The important cities of Philippi and Thessalonica were there in Macedonia. More important, this would be the first entry of the gospel into the continent of Europe. Verse 10. Now, after he had seen the vision, immediately we sought to go to Macedonia, concluding, notice, concluding that the Lord had called us to preach the gospel to them. Notice, God says, no, you're not going to Bithynia, you're not going to Mysia. Paul just waited and waited, and then the vision comes. Now Paul says, hey, they have concluded, this is where God wants us to go. They're to go to preach the gospel in Macedonia. And then when Paul got the vision, he didn't didn't waste a second. Notice Luke says that when Paul had seen the vision, it says in verse 10, immediately, (laughs) immediately we sought to go to Macedonia, concluding that the Lord had called us to preach the gospel to them. Immediately. So the missionary team's uh, experience shows us a basic principle here of knowing God's will. Allow him to close doors and don't move ahead until the right opportunity comes. And notice in verse 10, we see the first we passages in Acts because now this is where Timothy, I'm sorry, where Luke now joins the missionary group. Luke Luke wrote the the gospel, I'm sorry, the book of Acts, but now this is the first time when he says we, we hear of Luke now, he's joining the the missionary party. Like Timothy... Luke was to be uh, Paul's faithful friend and loyal companion for the rest of Paul's life. Now, in this part of the text that we just read about the Holy Spirit stopping and, and closing doors and, and waiting upon you know, God to, 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 to show them where to go and what to do, John MacArthur says this. It's a beautiful, um, it's a good, good note on, on uh, following God. MacArthur says, This passage shows us the basic principles of evangelism. God uses people with the right passion. He uses people with the right priority, with the right personnel taking the right precautions and to make the right presentation in the right place. Then we will be effective for God. Whenever you're looking for a way to evangelize, we need to evaluate those ways based on, the, on these principles that, that John MacArthur just showed us, just quoted here. Verses 11 through 15. Therefore, sailing from Troas, we ran a straight course to Samothrace, and the next day we came to Neapolis, and from there to Philippi, which is the foremost city of that part of Macedonia, a colony. And we were staying in that city for some days, and on the Sabbath day we went out of the city to the riverside, where prayer was customarily made, and we sat down and spoke to the women who met there. 
Now a certain woman named Lydia heard us. She was a seller of purple from the city of Thyatira who worshipped God. The Lord opened her heart to heed the things spoken by Paul. And when she and her household were baptized, she begged us, saying, If you have judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come to my house and stay. So she persuaded us. So Paul and his friends, they didn't dive in right away. You know, starting a ministry, evangelizing the city. Even though they knew God called them there. They probably needed to rest and to pray and to make plans of what they were going to do there. There are a lot of things that we need to know before we jump into doing the work. We need to know more than, than, than where God wants us to work. He, we, we also need to know when he wants us to work and how he wants us to do the work. And the Jewish population in Philippi, it must have been pretty small because there wasn't a, a synagogue there. It was, there was a, just a place of prayer by the river outside the city. A city required 10 men in order to have a synagogue. Now, we saw that Paul had seen a vision, all right? He'd seen a vision there at Troas, but here was a, a group of ministering women. And remember, uh, in that time, the women, you know, weren't respected much by men, and they didn't, you know, pay much attention to them. But here we see that, that Paul uh, wasn't thinking like that anymore. Paul had been obedient, and the Lord had gone before him to prepare the way. And so Lydia is mentioned here. She was a, sex, a successful businesswoman from Thyatira. Uh, it was a city that was well known for its purple dye, and she was probably in charge of a local office uh, of her company there in Philippi. But God brought her all the way to Greece. Notice that she might hear the gospel. And that she might be saved. You know, it's amazing the lengths that God will go through. The things that God will do to get you to hear his word. Because he wants you to be saved. It says in verse 14, she was a worshiper of God. She was a Gentile who wasn't a full Jewish believer yet. But she openly worshiped with the Jews. You see, she was looking for the truth. She was looking for the truth. It said, Paul shared the word. Spoken by Paul there in verse 14. Those words spoken by Paul, it means it was a, a personal conversation. It wasn't she was in a group of people that he was preaching to. Paul was personally speaking to this woman. He opened her heart to the truth of the word of God. She believed it and she was saved. And she boldly identified herself with Christ by being baptized. She wasn't afraid to, let, afraid to let everybody know, hey, I am a believer in Jesus Christ. And then she insisted that the missionaries stay at her house. All of her household got saved. They all got saved. This was a good chance now for Paul and his, and his missionary team to teach them the word of God and establish a local church there. And so... We can't assume that because God opened Lydia's heart that she had no part in getting saved. It says she listened attentively to the word. It's the word that brings the sinner to the Savior. God does his part. We have our part. Paul said faith comes by hearing, hearing by the word of God. You know, it's through listening to the word of God that the Holy Spirit, Spirit opens our heart. To be saved. 
So again, she listened attentively. Jesus said in John 5, 24, Most assuredly, I say to you, he who hears my word and believes in him who sent me has everlasting life. The same God who ordained the end, which was Lydia's salvation, also ordained the means to the end. Paul's witness of Jesus Christ. God's intent all along from the very beginning was to save Lydia. How was it done? Through Paul. Through that personal conversation that he had with her. God's intention for for everyone that's saved here was to save you. And we all have different testimonies of how we got saved. Maybe at a crusade, you heard the gospel, you went forward. Maybe it was in the church, it was just, you just heard the pastor preaching, you got up forward at the altar call, or, or, or you read the Bible and, and you, the Holy Spirit ministered to you and the word just jumped out at you and, and, and you got saved. But cho- God chose you from the, from the beginning of, the, of time. And then he, he, he used somebody, some way, some means to get you to that place. And so, this is a great example of 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses third, uh, verse, uh, beginning with verse 1. It says, But we are bound to give thanks to God always for you, brethren, beloved by the Lord, because God from the beginning chose you for salvation through sanctification by the Spirit and belief in the truth, to which He called you by our gospel for the obtaining of the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. It says right in the middle there, God from the beginning chose you for salvation. I mean, what a wonderful God to think He chose us. He chose us in spite of us. In other words, you know, some people say, I, 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 can't, you know, I, I can't be a Christian because, you know, I, I've done so many bad things in my life or, you know, the things that I'm doing now or, or, or things in the past and And God says, I chose you anyway. There's nothing he doesn't know about you. But here's the neat thing. When God chooses you and you open up to him, God will change all of that. God erases the past, every horrible sin that you've ever done. He wipes it out. He cleans your slate of life. And he says, your sins and your iniquity I remember no more. He says, I cast your sins as far as the east is from the west, complete opposite direction. They'll never meet up again. He says, I will bury your sins in the middle of the sea. And he says, leave them alone. If I have forgiven you for your sins, don't let Satan beat you up and continue to bring them up before you and say, oh, you can't be a Christian. Look at your path. God doesn't look at your past. God looks at you now and what he's going to do for you and to you in the future. Old things have passed away and everything has become new. Father, we thank you so much for your wonderful word, God. We thank you for your goodness. We thank you for your grace, God. We thank you for all that you are to us, Lord. And so, Father, we pray that you would minister to our hearts, Lord. Father, we thank you that you would open our heart, open up to us your word, Lord. Father, we can never say enough. We can never say thank you enough or just really what goes on in the depths of our heart, God. 
So Lord, we thank you. We love you. We thank you for the offering that we will receive today, Lord. And Father, we thank you for all that you've done. And we pray that you'd be with us through the day. You would protect us physically, uh, spiritually, Lord. And uh, God, that you'd have your hand upon us, Lord. So Father, we just give you honor, praise, and glory. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right, I encourage you always to come back this evening and our evening study. And uh, again, come and get the word of God and have him speak with you and to you. God bless you guys.